Let's pray together if we will. Our Father, it's our great privilege today to be called your children. And so we thank you for this opportunity to gather together underneath the teaching of your word. And with that in mind, Father, I do pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's see if we can get this rascal working. Looks like we're already in trouble this morning, folks. Um, if you will, we're going to be looking in Galatians chapter 5. Again, we're picking up in the series of sermons that we've been doing in Galatians through the book of Galatians. I've been tasked, uh, while some of the pastors are away, to be preaching from uh, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12 last week and 13 through 15 this week. The, uh, for those of you who may be visiting this morning, let me just give you a heads up on that. Our senior pastor has been on sabbatical for a while. He'll, he's about three and a half months into a six-month sabbatical. Our associate pastor has decided to fly the coop for the week, and uh, our music minister is gone, so it looks like it's just you and I. So we'll do make the best of it if we can. Thank you, by the way, worship team, for doing that without Daniel here this morning. That was great music this morning. We appreciate that. Let me read for us while you're all distracted with, the te- with that over there. Let's look at our Bibles, and let's read the text from Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 15, so we can get ourselves oriented around the text. Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and you devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now what I want to do as we begin this week is to kind of have a little bit of a summary, a little bit of a review, if you will, of what we did last week, because what you'll notice as we work through the text that we have before us today, verse 13 is, is directly linked to verse 1 in Galatians, and so it's really uh, in Galatians chapter 5, so it's vitally important for us to start there. Last week, by way of summary, what we tried to do is, is to talk about how it's important for us to recognize what true freedom is. So if you look down in your Bibles at verse 1 for a moment, you'll see this in the text. The main place we focused during our time was in verse 1, the first phrase there. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So let me just give you a quick reminder of how we tried to understand that particular phrase. The idea that when Paul says it was for freedom that Christ had set us free, there's a a, a double play going on here, that we were freed from something... You've been set free, the second half of that phrase. But you were freed for something. It was for freedom that Christ has released you from something. So what we began to talk about last week is the idea is that we're freed from and freed to. So during our discussion, what we spent the majority of our time on was talking about what we've been freed from. And then as Paul begins to develop the passage in chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, he begins to explain, if you get this idea wrong about freedom... Here's what some of the problems will be. Okay, so he, that's how we began to do this. And last week what I did is I gave you a visual image to try to get something in your head that would last longer than just the, the 40 minutes that I'm in front of you. And that was the picture of Yukon Cornelius. Remember this guy is the one, he's from uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And Yukon and is the guy who meets Herbie and Rudolph while they're wandering in the wilderness. And every time he looks for silver and gold, he throws his axe up into the air. And as it lands in the, in the, in the snow, he picks it up and he tastes it like the picture is here, and the words he utters is, nothing. 
Now, the picture that I wanted to place in your head with this idea is what Paul was trying to teach us in the passage of Scripture was that, particularly in verse 6, but really is kind of a summary, is that if you're looking for salvation and right standing before God by the works that you do or by saying you don't have to do anything, both of those will lead to nothing because they're missing the entire point of the passage and indeed the entire point of the book of Galatians and I would argue the whole point of the Bible. That the argument about how a person has right standing with God is not based on our works, what we do or what we don't do, but rather what Christ has done for us. And so for us as as believers then, what Paul is teaching the Galatians is vitally important because the Galatians had gotten caught up in a a problem. There was a group of, of Jewish people who were coming along behind Paul telling them that in order for you to have right standing with God, you have to obey certain aspects of the law. And in obeying those, God will find pleasure with you and maybe accept you. In other words, salvation was tied to works. What Yukon visualizes for us, what Paul's teaching for us here, is that if you try to get to heaven by the works of the law, either what you do or what you don't do, you got nothing. We got nothing. And it misses the entire point of the Bible. So what we see then is that we see this really important understanding of what Paul's after in the text is that we're freed from something and we're freed to something. So today what we're going to begin to develop more is the idea of what we've been freed for, what we've been freed to. So last week, the definition that I gave you, and let me put it up on the board here, for freedom, is this idea that freedom in Christ Jesus is the believer's liberty or release from everything that restrains or hinders radical devotion to God or the worship of him. Okay, so what we're freed from is we're freed from the bondage of sin, we're freed from the penalty of sin, we're also freed from the idea that you have to obey the law in order to be accepted before God. Okay, those are things we're freed from. But now what we're freed to is we're freed to the opportunity to live in liberty to worship God in a way that would bring maximum glory to his name. And so we need to develop that in this passage this week. Last week, what we've been freed from. This week, what we've been freed for. Next week, when Noah Joyner preaches for, you, for us, he'll be talking largely about how we can flourish in our worship before God through the fruits of the Spirit. So, in our text today, we're going to read it in just a second again so we can get our, our noses back into the text, but let me just kind of put forth the central ideas. In essence, what I want to do is give you my conclusion right now so that you'll be ready for it and watch how it develops through the text. What we're going to be looking for is really two major points that Paul's going to develop for us. The first one is how to avoid abusing the liberty or the freedom that we have in Christ. And then secondly, if it's true that we're free from the law, as we've been talking about all through Galatians, then what relevance is the Bible for us as Christians? Those are two vitally important questions we'll dig into here. Now, the reason why these are so important for us in our world and our culture at this time is because in evangelicalism as a whole, there are trends that are emerging within the movement of evangelicalism that are troublesome. You see them largely through what's called the emerging church movement, sometimes through some of the parachurch movements, but in evangelical churches sometimes as a whole, there's a, there's a tendency that's growing that wants to place the love of God in competition with the commandments of God. Okay? There are some that would argue that all we need to do is, is love God and we don't have to worry about it because we're free in Christ and so therefore we don't have to obey. When in actuality, pit, pitting the love of God against the commandments of God is never a good idea. It's never a wise idea. Now I'll illustrate this for you in the, in the form of a, a friend of mine from college. He and I were 
were very good friends in college. We had, uh, well, I won't go into any of the details, but he had been married for 20 years. And this friend of mine decided that after 20 years, he was going to divorce his wife who had never been unfaithful to him. And we got on the phone together, and he told me that he was going to leave his wife. And I responded by saying to him, if you do this, you are moving out of the blessing of the Lord and disobeying his commandments. Now, what he expected from me, I don't know where he got this expectation, but what he expected from me is I would say, hey, that's okay, I'll be there for you, can I help you move? But when I gave him the reply that this is disobedience before the Lord, his reply to me was interesting and very telling, and I think also also kind of common in our culture. His reply was, why are you being so judgmental? I'm free in Christ. People have been getting a pass on this for years. Why are you doing this to me? Folks, this is a common and very poor defensive move in the heart of a human being who doesn't want to repent before the Lord. That rather, by by wanting to follow their own desires, they'll oftentimes wrongly interpret the Scripture underneath the disguise of freedom in Christ. And in so doing, they will put themselves... In a, in a disposition before the Lord and before the church where they're probably in need of discipline. And I want to suggest to you that almost every church discipline issue that we will face here at North Wake and that's faced in the body of Christ will somehow be linked to this idea that I have a wrong understanding of what it means to be free in Christ. And so it's vitally important for us then to dig into this passage. Let me give you again, by way of conclusion, what John Stott will help us to think through in his commentary on this, and then we'll read the passage and dig into the words itself. John Stott writes it this way. When we understand freedom, we should understand it's freedom not to indulge the flesh, but to control the flesh. Freedom in Christ does not mean to exploit our neighbor, but to serve our neighbor. Freedom not to disregard the law, but to fulfill the law. Everyone who has been truly set free by Christ Jesus, expresses his liberty in three ways. First, in self-control. Second, in loving service of his neighbor. And third, in obedience to the law of God. Okay? First, self-control. Second, loving service of neighbor. And third, in obedience to the law of God. So let's, let's look back at the text and see if we can't dig in a little bit and understand it. Again, my preference is always that you're looking at your Bible, not necessarily the screen behind me, but for convenience today, I put that up on the uh, overhead. So let's look at the text again. For you were called to freedom. And again, at that point, if you'll look back at verse 1, you'll see it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now Paul's resuming that particular discussion. He says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in the word, in the one word, the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. So let's start at verse 13, and let's look at the first phrase that's in the, in the text there. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, first thing I want you to see in the text here is the words, for you. The word for is showing that there's a contrast with what was just taking place prior to this. Now, last week we talked about how Paul had such a a sober hatred for sin. He was telling the Judaizers and the the Galatians there, look, if you're so concerned that you want to be circumcised in order to get yourself right before God, you miss the point so badly. I'd rather you just, well, I'll let you read verse 12 yourselves to kind of get that point again. But he's so, 
so disgusted by the idea of how they were mistreating the gospel that Paul makes this radical statement. And then in verse 13, he switches. He says, however, for you, and now he's focusing back on the Galatians in contrast to them, he's giving them an emphatic you. He's telling them there's something that must be different than you. Your faith is different because it's based in Christ alone, and you've got to remember this. Now, you folks... You North Wakers is what we would say this morning. You people who are sitting here, you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. In the next part of the phrase, however, do not let your freedom, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay, so Paul's saying, you were set free, you're set free for freedom, but now you, those who are set free in this, don't use this as an opportunity. Now, the word opportunity in the text that you're looking at there actually has some pretty interesting background in the Greek language. It it comes from a word, oftentimes when the word is used, it's used in a a military setting. And the idea that goes behind this is that that the opportunity, aforme in the Greek, is a military context in which somebody uses, um, sets up, if you will, a, a staging ground for a battle. If you will, a base of operations, or if you think in mountain climbing terms, a base camp. So Paul's telling them, you've been given freedom, and now you're set free within this. But don't use this freedom as a base camp, as a staging ground, as a springboard into something that's not healthy. Now, what he talks about there, when he says this, he says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. The word for flesh in the Greek language is sarks. Sometimes it means just your flesh and blood. But in this particular context, what he's saying is more than just your flesh and blood. It's the fallen human nature, the center of pride and self-willing, if you will. It's the place in which you have the indulgence and self-assertion of your own personal desires. So Paul's saying, you've been set free from obedience to the law as a way to get right before God. But don't use that freedom in a way that becomes a staging ground, a base camp for you to become self-indulgent. If you were to do that, it would be incredibly wrong. Here's what Peter wrote about this. He says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves before God. John Stott says it this way, Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. It's an unrestricted liberty of approach to God and his children, or excuse me, as his children. It's not an unrestricted liberty. Get this, this is really a good way that he turns this phrase. Your freedom is not an unrestricted liberty to wallow in your own selfishness. Freedom freedom in Christ is not a base camp to wallow in our own selfishness. Now in today's culture, there are many folks who will argue, hey, I'm free. I'm free I can do whatever I want. One bumper sticker I used to see all the time when I lived in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, that was really interesting. Whenever you go to a college campus, you always see a little bit more of the radical edges of culture. Go down to UNC, and you'll see this same kind of thing take place down there. There was a bumper sticker that, uh, that would say, it was a pro-abortion bumper sticker, and it would say this, leave your laws off my body. Some of you may have seen a, a similar kind of bumper sticker like that. What is that, what is that saying to us? It's saying to us the idea that I'm free, there are no laws that constrain me, I can do whatever I want, and if you put any laws on me, then you're a legalist, and there's something wrong with you. It might sound like this, who are you to tell me what to do? Come on, man, don't be so judgmental. 
And these folks, they'll speak of love and they'll speak of free choices, but in reality, what's taking place, according to the scriptures, is that they become slave to their passions. And they're caught up in the desires of the flesh and then allowing the appetites of the flesh to drive the way that we think about our life and about our ethics, then what becomes the authority in somebody's life is their passions and desires. And they don't want to hear any rules. They don't want to hear any boundaries. Now, Paul warned us about this when he... Sorry, let me skip ahead. Paul warned us about this when he was teaching Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Look at this text of Scripture. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, be aware that there will come a time when the people you're ministering to, they will not endure sound doctrine, but instead wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And so the scripture are full here as Paul's talking about you being freed from the law, but now freed for something. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to wallow in your own selfishness. In fact, be very careful. My wife and I and my daughter, who's sitting here in the second row, we always joke about this. A couple years ago, we had the opportunity to go to China, and we took a climb up a mountain, and we had a guy who was guiding us up the mountain. And so um, Catherine was pretty young. She was three years younger than she is now, so eight years old. And, and as she was climbing up this mountain, this, this guide who was with us kept saying all the long, he must have repeated this probably 200 times, be careful, Kaki. Be very careful. Be very careful. And so the whole walk up and down, that's all we heard was, be very careful, Catherine. Be very careful. And in essence, that might be one of the word pictures that you put into your brain today. When Paul is describing the freedom in Christ, he in essence is saying, be very careful. Be very careful how you use this. The reason why is because if we're not careful, sometimes you can fall into the edge of legalism, but what Paul's helping us to see here today, the other edge is to fall off the side of license or a wrong-headed liberty, if you will, to wallow in selfishness. And instead of flourishing in our worship before the God, we'll diminish. And that's what the text tells us here. So, how do we then go about living in this freedom? Well, look at the next part of the passage that we're looking at here in verse 14. But through love, serve one another. Okay, so notice what he's just done again. He's introduced another contrast word with, with the word but. He's saying, you could use this freedom as an opportunity or as a staging ground, a base camp to indulge your selfishness. But you instead, is what he does there, through love, serve one another. So for the first time in this book of Galatians, we see this very, very clearly. The freedom that we're given in Christ is now linked to the love of God. And freedom and love begin to interact with each other and bound each other. And if you will, guide each other in a very important way. Love and freedom are brought together. So Christian, what he's saying is now you are free to love. And how do you express that love most beautifully? You serve. You are freed from the law so that you can serve through love those who are around you. He's going to develop this more in just a second here, but, but let me help you to just understand this. This is one of the most interesting twists in the whole book of Galatians where you see this in the text. The word serve that you read in your Bible there actually comes from the root word in the Greek, doulos. And the word doulos the way it's used here is the present active imperative in the Greek. And what that means is it means you actively are currently serving. 
the word doulos has the implication of slave. Okay, so notice, notice this. Don't miss this nuance. In verse 13 then, in essence what he's saying is that through love you should be a slave to your neighbors. But look back at verse 1 in your Bible. He's just told us to not become under, not to come under the yoke of slavery. So is Paul contradicting himself? I think the way we want to understand this passage is, is this way. The law of God, the word of God, becomes that which enslaves us if we don't have right relationship with God. We get bound by the law. We're slaves to the law because we think, I've got to prove myself before God. I have to do these things to make myself acceptable before God. And in that case, you're a slave. You're a slave to sin because the Bible works in that place for you to recognize your sin. But once you've placed your faith in Christ, once he rescues us by his grace, then we're free from that slavery, and now we're free in Christ to live a life of worship that through love serves Jesus said it this way. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus summoned his disciples around him, and he he said to them, you know, guys, the rulers of the nations, they like to lord themselves over people. And they're great ones. They exercise authority over people. But it should not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your bondservant. Even as the Son of Man came to be served and not to, uh, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me give you a word to North Wakers, particularly if you're here and you're a member of North Wake this morning. First of all, I want to commend you and say thank you. And I'll do this again in just a few minutes because I think there's two places in the text that just give us, me as a representative of the elders of the church, to just say thank you. You're a serving church, and, and we're so greatly appreciative of that. But I also want to give a word of admonition, not only to North Wakers, but particularly if you're here today and you're a seminary or college student at Southeastern, and you're thinking about going into ministry for full-time, Paul is in essence saying this to you. He's really saying this to all of us, but particularly those of you who believe you're called into the ministry. If you love, you will serve. If you love, you will serve. Folks, at the leadership at North Wake... When we look for folks that we're, we're asking to become small group leaders, to step into ministry coordinator positions, all of us as elders would love to replace ourselves with men who, who are uh, qualified to be elders in the church. That's the way church should work, and that way we can then spin people out and plant churches all over the world. What we're looking for is not natural gifts. What we're looking for is the guy who at the end of the service says to himself, there's trash on the ground. I need to pick that up. It's the guy who, who recognizes that in service there may be three or four or five people around them this morning who they've never met, and they say, you know what, I wonder if anybody else is meeting them. I better go meet them because they're serving. They say to themselves when the Lord's Supper is done, hey, there are a lot of plastic cups that are sitting around here. I wonder if I can pick those up and throw those away, and no one will know. You see, because what Jesus tells us true leadership is are the people who serve do it well, and oftentimes when nobody's watching. That's true service. And if you think you're called to the ministry and you're not placing yourself in common dispositional positions, in other words, you're not constantly looking for places to serve, you're probably not training well. 
So, folks, this morning, if, if you want to learn about service at North Wake, look at families like the Rhodes family. Now, they're not in this service, I don't believe, this morning. Maybe some of them are. But what you'll find when you watch the Rhodes, Mary and Roy have taught their children exceptionally well. They were always last at every event, putting things away. Why? Because they understand that training future leaders means training future servants. Look at the Divini family who've been here for years and, and often unthanked in the way that they take care of the grounds and sing in our worship team here. Look at the Iversons or the Cahoots or really any small group leadership. And what you'll find are folks who are figuring out ways to serve with no pay, oftentimes no thanks, but in a way that's reflective of what the scriptures are teaching us right here. This is true leadership. It comes through service. Back to our text in particular. Here's the question we're asking. If true freedom and liberty, if they come in Christ, and that's the removal of all barriers to proper worship of God, if true freedom is loving service to others, we should be very careful, be very careful to guard and not abuse our freedom, then how do we do that? That's what verse 14 says. So again, stick your nose back in your text and let's look at verse 14. Let me read it again. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pick this one apart here a little bit. Now, again, up to this point in the book of Galatians, Paul has spoken of the law largely in negative terms. terms. All humans are under the curse of the law. You're now free from the law, and you hear that kind of language. But now he pivots. And in this point of the passage, he's telling us that the law is good. In fact, he's telling us we should obey it, and it's all summed up in this one phrase. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. So let's look, first of all, about this phrase, the whole law. What Paul is saying to us here, if you will, is that the purposes of the teaching of the entire Old Testament, which would have been the law that he has there, particularly the teachings of Moses in the first five books, or the Pentateuch of the Bible, but really the whole of the Old Testament as they had it, the Bible for them, can be summarized down into this one phrase. Now again, note on the, on the passage here, Paul is saying the word fulfilled. Notice that the word is not performed. There is a little difference that I think it's important for us to see here. It certainly means that you're going to have to do things that would be in accordance with the laws of God. But the purpose, again, is not to do them so that you earn God's salvation. But having been saved by God, we begin to fulfill the whole purposes of the law. Well, how do you do that? Notice what Jesus says to us at this point. Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls the least of the commandments and teaches them to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Thus, the whole law and its purposes should be obeyed and performed, but more importantly, fulfilled in the life of the believer. So how should we do that? Well, they're summarized in one word. And, and just for your understanding here, the word, when he says one word, what he means is basically one phrase. Okay? So this one phrase would be the fulfillment of the life of the law of the person who is seeking to do what God has been commanding all the way through the Old Testament up to this point, that you would fulfill it by loving your neighbor as yourself. So notice the phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very interesting where this comes from in the text. Let me show you the, the genesis of this. 
The Old Testament source where this comes from, that Jesus worked from, when he said a similar thing, is in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. And it reads this way. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice the connection. You love your neighbor because I am the Lord. Okay, You love your neighbor because I am the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, he was asked the question, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus will later say in John chapter um, 13, he would say this, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. So, if Jesus says there are two commandments, the first is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor, why does Paul here in the text tell us that it's all summarized by the second of those two, to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, this is where it's just important to have good Bible study skills. In essence, the reason for this is the entire book of Galatians has been assuming that your first commandment is that you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That your relationship with God depends upon your right ordering with him and having a love relationship in place. Now, Paul is saying, because of that you've been freed, how should you not abuse your freedom? So his, his talk now is on ethics. So what he's going to do is say, look, I'm assuming in essence that because you have a right relationship in the gospel, now all of the law and how you should live your life in freedom can be summarized in the second of the two great commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me put it this way. It's not because loving your neighbor as yourself is superior to worshiping God and loving him first, but rather because it's the proof of your love of God. It's the proof of your love of God. Let me show you how Paul handles this very same discussion in the book of Romans. And I want you to follow this. This is really where the whole sermon today hinges. The commandments, Paul says this, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbors, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice what Paul has just done here. The moral commandments of the Ten Commandments are assumed in your behavior if you're loving your neighbor. In other words, to say it a little differently, if you're truly loving your neighbor, you're obeying the Ten Commandments. And that's Paul's assumption there. Thus, Here's how it works in the passage. What you've been freed from is the law as a means to earn your favor before God. But now that you've been set free for freedom, your freedom will have its fullest aspects of worship before God as you live that out by obedience to the Ten Commandments. Wow. And indeed, what Paul is telling us is here, far from being free from, to do whatever you want, Paul is teaching us that in order to avoid the abuse of liberty... We should live according to the moral laws of God. And here's what will happen. And you'll see this develop next week as Noah preaches. What will happen is true freedom that comes into the obedience of the moral commands of God will begin to develop in your life fruit. Indeed, what we call that is the fruits of the Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit begins to work in the life of the believer, taking the commands of God and cultivating those into the life of how we live in our sanctification, 
We become people who are loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and who are kind. Jesus said it this way, folks. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he went on to say, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who truly loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to them. So the flow is that when your relationship is right with God, then you're doing these things as an act of worship before the king. The danger with the Judaizers is that they got into legalism and they began to say, as I do these things, they make me right before God. But no, Paul's saying that's bondage, that's slavery. Instead, it's as you're right before God that in order to worship him well, you'll understand that this is the way that God built the universe and you should follow these commands. Let me explain that last point this way to you. Freedom from the law and freedom to the law can be explained this way to understand the nature of the law. I put up two passages of scripture. I could have put up quite a bit more, but just get this idea down in your mind. Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, that everything that was created in the world is created by God. So just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, so also are there spiritual and moral laws that are in place. That's the way God built the universe. Now, when God built the universe that way, he did it in such a way that when you see this in Colossians chapter 1... All things were by God created, both in heavens and on earth. There are visible things and there are invisible things. Whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now here's what this means in everyday life. You might today, on a wild hair, decide that you're free from gravity. After all, you're free in Christ and you're free from the law. So one of the laws you might decide that you're free from is the law of gravity. And you decide, based on that, you're going to go walk off some building that's about 14 stories tall, and you say, I'm free. What's going to happen? Gravity's still going to work, right? Well, aren't you free from the law? Maybe that's a misunderstanding of freedom. Maybe freedom is living in light of the way the universe was created. And the universe was created that gravity will work whether you think you're free from it or not. Likewise with moral laws. You might describe yourself as free from the love of neighbor. You might describe yourself as free that you can do whatever you want. But is that actually how the universe will work? Ask anybody with a sexually transmitted disease. It doesn't work that way. And so what the Lord's telling us is that true freedom comes from understanding that the law works in such a way that it's helping us to live within the boundaries of how God structured the entire universe. Your proper worship will come before the Lord as you live according to the way he built you and the way he built the universe. In summary then, here's the way that you might understand how the law works for the believer. When I teach this in seminary, this is an entire day, so a three-hour block. You're getting it in about 30 seconds, but I think we can put the pieces together this way. When the law is used in the Bible, it can be used in three ways. First of all, and this is the primary way that Paul has been using it in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, the law has been seen as a tutor, and you saw that in chapter 3, as that which sets a standard up for the non-believer, shows them they can't reach the standard, so therefore it shows us, as a tutor would, as a teacher would, our need for a savior. 
Now, some people will reject the Savior, but the law in their case will still work to restrain them from being evil as they might, ought to, they might otherwise want to be. So, for example, if you put up a speed limit side that says 65, typically people will only push it to about 75, even though they're non-believers. Well, why is that? If there was no speed limit at all, they're probably doing 120. But what the law does is it even restrains the non-believer out of fear of punishment. Okay, so that's how the law works for the non-believer, and, and for even the believer to show us those things. But for the Christian, there's a third aspect of the law that Paul's after today, and that's the idea that the Scripture comes as a guide for life and worship. So how do you obey and worship well? Well, you place yourself under the Scriptures for the sake of living a life that will bring glory to God. Genesis 5, or excuse me, Galatians 5, 15 reads this way. If you bite folks and you devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul finishes out our passage this morning by saying this. Look, you've been freed from the law as a means to get to heaven. Now you're free to obey the law. So as you are obeying the law, be careful that you don't use it as a stage so that you can just indulge your selfishness. Instead, you're Use that as a platform for yourself to serve others well. And as you serve, the way that you're going to serve, the very best way you're going to serve, is by placing yourself under the moral commandments of God. Now, verse 15, if you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. If you get freedom wrong and you think you can do whatever you want, what will end up happening is you'll bite and you'll devour one another. And the language here that's used in the original Greek is the language of wild animals. You will be a kind of people who will bicker and fight and, and just go after each other, say, I've got my rights and you've got no rights for those things. And what will happen is you'll begin to devour and actually cut off the very freedom that you wanted to have in the first place. Here's the second place today that I really want to commend you as North Wakers. I speak for the elders when I say to you all, thank you for being a joy to lead. You're not a people who are contentious. You place yourself under leadership exceptionally well, and you're folks that walk out service in a way that's beautiful for us to behold. And we just, we hope that we're modeling that for you as well. But just thank you for that. Because I teach at the seminary, it's fascinating the stories I hear about all the other congregations where people fight and bicker. They're worried about whether they, someone can sit in that chair because they paid for it 150 years ago and their grandparents. And, you know, you get that kind of fighting and bickering and devouring. And what happens is it cuts off the freedom in Christ. No one wants to go to those churches anymore. Those are the churches that once had 500 people that now have 20. And you're not like that. And, and, and we want to just thank you and bless you and, excel, and ask you to excel still more in that. Because the heart that bickers like that is the heart that says leadership comes through position instead of leadership comes through service. Well, let me bring into summary by telling you a little story. If you'll indulge me for a moment here. Uh, I mentioned last week that I would uh, give you an opportunity to hear a little bit about my trip to the Grand Canyon. I might make some of you jealous, but I won't take this real long, and it won't be a super long family slideshow. But let me just show you a couple pictures to kind of help bring this to conclusion. I had the opportunity to travel through the Grand Canyon. We did a 190-mile whitewater float down there for seven days. I slept under the stars for six nights. It was just an incredible experience. One of the places as you float down there, you see these waterfalls that will pour off the side of the canyon at different points. And you've got to remember that the atmosphere there is about 110 degrees all day long. And when you go to sleep at night, it gets down to a real cool 90 or so. 
One of the nights we were there, we had a desert wind come through, a Scirocco came through, and in a minute and a half's worth of time, the temperature went from 90 to 110. It was like someone had a hair dryer and blew it on you all night long. Okay, that's the kind of sleeping. So when you see a waterfall, you think, ah, bath, well, cold water, I can get in there and sleep, or <laughs> swim. <laughs> now this one, to give you a little sense, this is about a 70-foot high waterfall. Okay, now as we were stopping there, we climbed up above it, because whenever I get to a waterfall, I always think, I want to go and see the source of this thing. And so that's what we did. We started to climb up, and so you get a little bit of a sense of, of the, the height here. And let me give you one more picture to sense that. As we began to look down, that's how far down it was. So we're climbing up this, uh, this area here, and along the way, we just saw all these spectacular things. But we eventually, as we were walking... We were going to try to reach this place. Those who were our guides told us there there was a place in front of us known as the patio. And the patio was, in essence, a desert oasis that was just full of lush life, waterfalls that would trickle. We probably took uh, 17 showers because I was just going from waterfall to waterfall and just kind of jumping in these different things along the way. But here was the problem. While that was the goal, to get to the waterfall, notice the people on your right. You had to walk along a pretty treacherous path to get there. And if you notice the size of the canyon, that's actually the shallow part of the canyon that we were walking along. And at one particular point, here's what you came to. Now, that path is about a foot wide. And that drop there is probably about 100 feet down. You come to that path, and as you're walking along, you actually would be going in this direction. And the wall, right where that path gets that thin, the wall bumps out. Okay? Okay. So it was an incredibly treacherous path there. There's two ways to approach that path. Actually, three. One way to approach that path is to be so concerned about the path that when you see how thin it gets and the bump out, you get frozen and you can't go any further. You never make it to the oasis. That happened to three of the guys on the trip. They were so nervous about keeping the path and the wall, they never actually got there. Now, thankfully, this didn't happen on our trip, but just recent, prior to us being there, someone had gone pretty lackadaisical just down the path, and they had fallen off and died. It happened just two weeks prior to us going there. Those of us who were able to make it to the patio, to the oasis, had a different perspective. Instead of focusing on the narrowness of the pass and the danger, instead of just being lackadaisical, what kept it in mind for me to get past that point was the oasis. And by focusing on the oasis at the end, it was easier to figure out a way to get past the path. See, the danger in the Christian life, folks, is that some folks want to get to heaven by keeping such a focus on the path that they think they can earn their way in. And oftentimes what will happen is they will freeze and oftentimes even leave their faith. Either way, it's never going to get you there. On the other hand, while you're trying to get to the destination, if you're just lackadaisical, you also can fall off into moral canyons and failures. But the goodness of our Savior tells us that in order to get to the oasis, in order to taste and see that the Lord is good, to live under the living waters of true worship before the King of the universe, you focus on the joys that are set before you. And in focusing on the joys that are set before you, guess what? You still have to walk the path. But in walking the path now, instead of that being the way you earn your right to heaven, it becomes the very way you enter into the blessedness of the Lord.
So how does the scripture work for the believer? Well, it works as a guideway, a pathway to shepherd our souls and to prosper worship of the king. And what Noah will teach us next week and we can prepare our hearts for is as we live under those moral commandments of God, they begin to shape us so that fruit begins to pour forth from our lives because the Holy Spirit's working in us to make us beautiful. Northwake, God wants people to taste and see that he is good by the way they look and see your life. Let it be gushers of living water for them to taste and see the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the moral commandments of the Bible that teach us how to live, how to serve. We thank you that you have freed us through the gospel, that we don't have to obey the law to earn our right standing before you, but rather having been rescued, you then give us the scriptures so that we can live a life that flourishes in worship before the king of the universe. Oh, Father, we pray that those living waters would spring up in our souls and pour forth into our lives so that when people see us, they will taste and see that you are good. And in our own lives, we will worship well with all that we have. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.